you're waiting in line at Starbucks or waiting for your Uber car to show up, you probably do what I do and what many of us do, which is pull out our cell phone and uh, pass that time with checking email or texting a friend or browsing images or whatever the case may be. And our guest in this episode of the Tech Emergence podcast, Sherry Turkle, who is the director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self Program in Science, Technology, and Society, which is an awful large mouthful. Uh, but Sherry Turkle at, at MIT, who's also author of the new book, Reclaiming Conversation, has the contention that we might actually be losing something. And I know there's going to be folks on the other side of this argument, and I'm sort of on both sides myself. I think whenever there's new developments in technology, new ways of interacting with technology, there are always those that will rail against those changes uh, and some of the detriments that they might bring. Sherry's of the belief that, that there's enough mounting scientific evidence that we may be losing our in-person empathy and even our self-knowledge through our interactions with machines. And some of her arguments, I think, are worth tuning into. Similarly speaking, Sherry has some subtle fears in the future with respect to uh, artificial intelligence and machines that can replicate emotion, replicate conversation, and that we as human beings might tie ourselves uh, to entities that, that really don't feel anything back. And that maybe there will be a younger generation or even a generation alive today um, that ends up tied to vapid, somewhat meaningless skeletons of what conversation is and, and never really learn to connect with people in a way when maybe technology was not as all-pervasive. Uh, no matter which camp you're in on the side of tech uh, and how pervasive it ought be in our life, I think it's a, a worthwhile fact to consider and certainly an interesting conversation. I hope you'd enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, Ms. Sherry Turkle. So, Sherry, the topic that I wanted to be able to talk about first with you here is this notion that you've spoken of, of the fact that loneliness is a problem that we think technology can solve. I don't think most people think about it that way. How do you mean that when you say it? Well, you can see that when people are at a stop sign, when they're standing in line at a supermarket, they pull out a device. There's a, there's a, um, there's a new intolerance for a moment alone. There's actually an experiment where people are asked to, to sit alone without a phone and without a book or anything to, to do uh, for 15 minutes and they're asked, do, do you think that you'll want to give yourself electroshocks if you are asked to sit alone for 15 minutes? And people say, absolutely not. I mean, absolutely not, that'd be crazy. But in fact, after six minutes, a large number of people would rather give themselves electroshocks than sit alone and just be left alone with their thoughts. Wow. Because we are so used to turning to a device, to a phone, to a screen, when we have a moment where we could have a moment of self-reflection. Hmm. And this is where we are now. And it's, um, it's not a good place. And I think it's important to kind of mark the moment uh, about our new intolerance for uh, looking within, because that capacity to look within is so essential. For, for, for sure. And I think you know, our, our capacity to, to metacognate um, and or to be okay with knowing of ourselves, I mean, by golly, uh, you know, sort of, of, of undeniable worth in so many different respects. Uh, 
you know, some people might make the argument, oh, you know, well, the kids these days, they're, they can learn Chinese on their phone anytime and they can, you know, the, our minds can be so much farther expanded and maybe technology aids in our knowledge of ourself or what have you. But your, your uh, own research and, and side of the argument too is that, hey, we may in fact leave behind uh, quiet and calm and, and self-reflection in and of itself or even conversation between two people in and of itself. And do you see this as a trend? And if so, how? I'm not familiar with all of your research, but what's pointing you to, to the to the conclusion that this isn't just people fidgeting because they're bored, but that as a society, we are on the aggregate less capable of that kind of silence with, with ourselves. What, what brings you to that conclusion? I'm making, I'm making an argument that a moment of boredom, we have to rethink what we mean by a moment of boredom. That a hmm. moment of boredom is not a bad thing. Boredom is an opportunity for you to look within and discover your inner life. Uh, we're, we're fleeing from this notion of boredom as though uh, all the new research is pointing to boredom being a trigger for some of our most creative and innovative thinking. And boredom has become a word that we, that we flee as though we need to turn on an app when we have that feeling. Yeah. But that's not a good thing. The, the new research is showing that boredom is a boredom is a trigger to stop and and look within, and we're 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 not respecting um, the need to walk towards boredom, walk towards solitude, and reclaim uh, boredom and solitude, which are the first steps towards conversation. Let me say why that is. Yeah. Because if you can't have a moment of solitude, if you don't know who you are within yourself, you then turn to other people and you need them to be who you need them to be because you don't know who you yeah, are. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you know who you are, you can see them for who they really are and you can have a true conversation with them as an other. If you don't know who you are, you just need to kind of glom onto them in order to kind of make yourself feel better or make yourself feel whole. So the capacity for solitude, the capacity for, for, for turning within and knowing who you are is the beginning of a capacity for relationship. And, and we wow. need to return to that understanding um, in order to, you know, to form relationships in a healthier way. And that's, the capacity for solitude is one of the most important developmental achievements of childhood, and we are robbing childhood of that capacity by stuffing objects and devices into children's faces. Um, either way, I, what you're hearkening to is a notion that, uh, you know, man, that's 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 an old notion, and I think it's a very tried and true notion. I mean, you read your you read your Emerson, never mind read your Aurelius. Uh, and how many times does that come through? And I think that in an intuitive level, many of us have an understanding that without knowing who we actually are, then we are kind of fleeting to uh, very peripheral sort of notions of self that are dependent on interactions and that it's difficult to form a real relationship if we aren't in touch with who we are genuinely as people. These are kind of a little bit lofty notions, but they ring very true to me. And I think for folks that they resonate with, they resonate with deeply. Some might argue, shucks, you know, since, I mean, it, I don't think it's just, uh, you know, 2012 when folks all of a sudden weren't able to metacognate. Some people might say, man, you know, 
the, 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 the broad swath of the majority of humanity has not known of itself and has found ways to distract itself and has not, you know, metacognitively considered its own likes, dislikes, purpose, meaning in a visceral way since there have been man and that, and that we've always avoided that or the majority, we could say the majority of people, uh, have, have not, uh, see, uh, went out and, and, and kind of took out, uh, their own inner selves in a metacognitive sense. And that maybe there were always fillers of these gaps. Are you, are you seeing that that's maybe even more so the case? So that more, more than even, you know, in 1620, you know, I'm sure not everybody could deeply articulate their own semblance of meaning and notions of self and values. Um, today, I think probably similarly, not many people can pull that off. Um, but you seem to think that maybe that's actually on the uptick because of technology. It's not just a general trend, but maybe it's actually rising because we're robbing kids of even having the ability to build that early, early on, if I'm hearing you right. In other words, the studies are showing that in the past, uh, in the past uh, uh, 10 years, and there's been a 40% decline in, 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 in the capacity for empathy uh, oh. among college-age students, uh, which, which sort of begins with, uh, with a majority of it having taken place over the past 10 years. I mean, there's been a... Um, because... And the researchers who, who, who found this, you know, are, are basically saying that it's, it's because people, you know, turn first uh, to, a, uh, to a phone wow. instead of turning to a conversation. You learn empathic, uh, you know, you learn empathic communication by, by understanding yourself and then by looking to others. So you know, to, to your point about, we've, we've, you know, have we always, have we always fled the experience of solitude because it's difficult and sought, um, uh, you know, was it, you know, sought some kind of distraction or, of course, yeah, of course, but we're now, you know, we're now putting babies into baby bouncers and putting and making sure there's a slot for a, for a uh, an iPad, yeah, uh, and, and I think I think you know w without without wanting to say that there's you know anything new under the sun, uh, uh, you can say that there's a qualitative difference um, where we're now getting used to a life where we're refusing to accept where we're refusing to uh, kind of moment of quiet, kind of moment of reflection. Where we see multitasking as something that will kind of be always good and always positive instead of something that will be I think I think most people see that we're at a you know at a, at a different point. Uh, I see it as a kind of moment of a sort of silent spring moment. Yeah. Where where people are sensing there's a crisis of empathy, there's a crisis in our capacity for solitude, there's a crisis in our capacity for conversation, and that it's just a moment to kind of take stock and, and, um, and regroup. Yeah, to yeah. consider our, our social trajectory, if you will, and I think that that's a more than worthwhile point. Before I go into my next question, just you talking about this, Sherry, has got me thinking, you know, I know that there are folks 
on I don't I want I don't want to call it the other side of the fence because I I don't like enemizing and I don't like A against B as a default way of thinking through things. I think that there's a lot of ideas around this space. I think there are many important ideas. And I think that there are folks and I forget of what Pinker's notions were in the Angels of Our Better Nature uh, with respect to the effects of technology and the connectedness of the various races and whatnot. Um, but there are some who it's who who I think in some way will say, hey, you know, maybe there are some some proliferating factors of empathy through our interaction and connectedness with technology with other people and genders and races and parts of the world and seeing the violence in Egypt and whatever the case may be, um, that, that maybe that expands that. It sounds like the folks who you were tuned into in terms of their own research, and I'm not sure how they measured empathy and I wasn't there for the research either, but it sounds like they're not necessarily, uh, seeing that as, as the case, that it may in fact be the other way around because we don't have, uh, potentially because we don't have the ability to, to know ourselves and to relate in the kind of genuine way that is the bedrock of sort of genuine um, empathetic interaction. It sounds like that's a, a counter-argument. distinction between empathy and compassion. Mm. In other words, I think what people can feel is a sort of uh, an abstract sense of compassion and understanding. But... People are having a very hard time literally looking at another human face <laughs> and knowing what that face and what that expression on that face signifies about what that face is feeling. So I think that people are losing a kind of micro-level understanding of, of what the expressions that play on a face signify. At the same time that they may be getting a very a richer understanding and knowledge of what's happening on the other side of the earth that they wouldn't have had before. Yeah. And those two things can be happening at the same human moment. And we have to we have to have both of these because an abstract understanding of what's happening on other sides of the world can be too abstract, in other words, for us to really feel it in our hearts. I, I, there's a lot of credence to that. I think there's a lot of credence to that. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's where really researchers seem to be saying different things, but they aren't really saying different things. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. people use these words, empathy, and uh, for me, sometimes people use the word empathy and they're really talking about compassion, understanding. When I'm talking about empathy, I'm literally meaning, can I look at another human face? Can I be in a conversation and know what that person is feeling and be able to put myself in the place of that other person? And that comes through practice yeah. in face-to-face -face human conversation. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the uh, I know that Jobs, Steve Jobs, I think, limited his children's time with electronics. I believe Gates does as well. They're not... You know the, the the fella at uh, um, the fellow who runs Wired. I don't Kevin. I don't know why his last name's escaping me. Um, I, I believe is sort of unplugged, at least from what is said, or is, at least his children are from what I've heard. The vast majority of the time, he's not working, or at least has made the attempt to to seem as such, um, and, and and probably genuinely is, and 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 sees the value in what you're articulating. How do you see the value of conversation. Conversation itself, kind of a big topic in your book, but before even this book, I mean, a lot of your research um, in this domain have been around the value of conversation. You mentioned 
Empathy takes legitimate practice. Understanding a face, really being able to feel someone and genuinely understand someone actually takes practice. Sure, we're wired for it, but we gotta, we gotta be able to train that. What, what, are, what are the other values of conversation itself for you? Well, conversation turns out to be good for productivity. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that I found in doing research for this book is that conversation is good for the bottom line. I mean, in business, <laughs> all the measures of, of, you know, we give people breaks at the same time and allow them to talk to each other, whether they're working in a, as programmers or in a call center or in a bank, the, the fact of people being able to talk to each other increases their productivity. Um, people talk about, you know, asking, you know, email people, you know, people who are emailing back and forth and coming finally to, to the, to the, to, the, to their supervisor and the supervisor just in frustration saying, talk to each other. You know, you need to learn to apologize to each other. You need to learn to, you know, have a conversation in which you recognize, you know, each other's, you know, humanity and, and, and be able to have compassion for each other and move beyond. And this takes, being able to move beyond in a conflict takes recognizing in another person that they're sorry, that they that they recognize that they've hurt you, that they see that they that there's pain and that they want to make amends. And when you when you type I'm sorry and hit send, you don't no. accomplish no. any of those goals. So in a business whether it's in a business setting or in a personal life setting, you know, you you need to you need to make those steps. And so conversation is good in business, it's good in personal life, it's critical in family discussions. Uh, you know, I've interviewed families who try to have their, you know, arguments, for example, in over, over texting and email <laughs> yeah. in, order to, in order to sort of not have, you know, uh, bigger, you know, a lot of animosity. And they, there's a, there's a limitation to what they can accomplish because they, you know, people need to accept who we are as full human beings, and full human beings, warts and all, have a lot of messy emotions. Yep. So to fully accept who we are, we, we need conversation. Um, so I'm, uh, you know, it's not my, my book is not, and my research is not at all anti-technology. I love technology, but it's 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 pro-conversation. It's just saying that we need to accept that. Conversation is such an important part of who we are and lets us accomplish such important goals that it's very easy to, you know, forget that in our, sure. in our rush to the new. And, and I think, um, you know, I mean, how, how often in, in you know, technology is just a double-edged sword across the board. I mean, if, if in, in, in the study of human fulfillment, human well-being, human happiness, um, there is no higher conduit there too than relate relatedness relationship, um, and and you mentioned the value in business and all this, and we can see how technology proliferates that, but that it also loses a part of it, and it's it's interesting to sort of juggle and jostle what are the real pros and cons, what are the aspects the double edged sword that we should be concerned about, and I mean here at Tech Emergence, a lot of the focus is around the ethical and societal impact of our trajectory, where the technology is taking us. And maybe that's where I'll wrap things with you, Sherry, and get some of your ideas. What are some of the technologies that for you, 
you know, maybe pose some of the, the, the biggest, I don't want to put it as threat. This is not a henny penny uh, interview here, but, but what are the technologies that for you might really sort of take from what makes us human and what proliferates our own conversation and our self-knowledge? Is it virtual reality? You know, is it, is it, uh, is it this terrible thing called Skype that we're using, <laughs> which certainly has its pros and its cons sometimes? Um, is it uh, other messaging platforms, um, certain facets of uh, developed AI like Siri when it becomes conversational in some way? What are the, the technological developments in the coming 10 years that you foresee as maybe really taking a lot more than they give? The one that I think is most, uh, that, I've, that I've researched the most and that I think is most troubling is our, our programs that pretend, or at least convince us, that they have feelings <sighs> for us so that we want, so that we experience them as friends, but really they don't feel for us at all. So I've interviewed children who love to talk to conversational bots online, who are getting ready to talk to sort of souped-up versions of Siri and take it as a best friend. Um, but, of course, there's nobody home. Uh, they're not being understood. They're being convinced that they are being understood. They feel understood in a kind of as-if world. So they... It's kind of like an imitation game. Yeah. In a Turing sense, they, they feel as if they're understood, but they're not being understood. And I think it sort of is, we really need to reflect um, about, you know, what it's doing to our human, to our human selves that we've kind of gotten ourselves to a point where we're, real, where we're ready to accept kind of as if, conversations as though they're the real thing because I think we've kind of gotten ourselves to that point and we've gotten kids to that point yeah and I think that's a I, I, I think that that's a disturbing point because there's no question my research shows that kids will accept the as if as if it is the real and that doesn't mean it is the real or it doesn't mean that they're being understood as by real people, doesn't have the effect of being understood by real people. They're not in a relationship, and the, and yet we're okay for them to have these as-if conversations. And I think this, in the long run, these as-if relationships and our willingness to put ourselves in that position um, is quite distressing. And I think it's also a wake-up call because... It's an opportunity to say, hey, you know, what have we become that we've become such cheap dates that <laughs> we're willing to do that to ourselves? Yeah, and, and, and Sherry, um, this, you know, you had brought up before, and I'll clarify this for the audience, um, this whole, you mentioned a silent spring moment, and many folks are not going to know what a silent spring moment is. Silent spring is a uh, eminently famous book in, in the environmental movement uh, of, of the, if I'm not mistaken, early or mid '60s, um, by a woman whose name escapes me. But that that there will be. Uh, Carson wrote Rachel Carson. Yes, yes, Carson. Yep. Rachel Carson wrote about a moment when we realized that what technology was doing to our environment 
to give us a kind of shock of recognition that we were ready yeah. to confront that. No, she was maybe wrong. <laughs> we weren't quite ready yet to confront it, but at least it was a start. It, it, and I think yeah. we're at a moment where we've we've had some experience with this technology. Uh, we've we've fallen in love with it. We've been smitten. And now we're just at a moment when we're ready to say, hey, you know, it's it's given us so many things that are so valuable, that are so wonderful. But, you know, has it taken us away from conversations that matter? Has it taken us away from looking at our children at dinner, from talking to them when it counts, uh, from talking to each other when it matters? Uh, uh, can we take the good of this technology and then appreciate all the great things it gives us, but also reclaim the conversations that matter. Um, and I think we're at a point when we can have our silent spring moment. And for me, that's a moment when you take what's good about the technology, but also are mature enough with the technology to begin to use it in a more uh, discriminating way. Yes. And, and I think you know, the, the, the clarion call, as it might be referred, uh, environmentally, I think, was an important one. And arguably, maybe some of us would say isn't being heard maybe as loudly as we wish it would be. I think that similarly, the conversation we're talking about is inevitable on a grander social scale, or at least I would hope it would be. And clearly, that's a bit of your uh, kind of bring to the table here uh, with your own research as well. I think it, it brings up a lot of interesting questions, Sherry, uh, you know, about this whole notion of kind of these pretend relationships and, and what is it about that that lets us convince ourselves that that's real? Is it, are, are, is the generation, is this coming generation, um, are they, are they maybe preparing themselves for a world where we are interacting with artificial intelligence and robots and, and whatever the case may be? And that maybe if, if perception is perception, then maybe that is as real as it gets. And is it adaptive for them to have some understanding of the ability to interact with these things? But then again, what are all the horrible negatives of legitimately attributing sentience and traits to an entity that, that, that does not have them? You know, how much of this is inevitable and that humanity will have to adjust to? But then again, how much is it taking away from what is human? These are really big questions and I think worth starting discussions um, around. And it sounds like for you, um, being what these are the central questions. Totally, AI is coming. Yep, and we have to be ready to deal with AI with our eyes wide open. Indeed, but dealing with it as though we're dealing. You know, I, I think we want to sort of deal with it as though it's our new best friend. It isn't our new best friend. It's uh, it's a technology that knows how to. Fool us! Yeah, we've made it into you know we've created something that knows how to fool us. That it's like us, but it isn't like us. So the our question is why can't we respect who we really are? Um, because we're not like it. Uh, and I think I think that I I, I you know it, it it's our moment it's our moment to assert who we really are. Um, and not let technology, for all of its magnificence, uh, limit our vision of who we really are. And Sherry, on a closing note, I'll say that if there's, uh, if there's anything that hopefully is worth having a serious conversation about, 
the trajectory of intelligence and the technology that proliferates it, I hope would be as worthy as it gets. So uh, thank you so much for being able to share your insights here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, Sherry. Thank you. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives, top researchers, and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in and I'll catch you next week.